Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. It is Tuesday, February 5th. Happy 2019. We haven't done a radio show yet this year. We've had so many guests just squashed in. We don't know what to do. We, uh, we've had a great backlog. Hope you guys listen to a lot of them. One of my favorites at the end of the year, Steve Romick. There's been a lot of really fun ones. we got a lot of fun guests coming up. And today, joining one of our coworkers on the podcast, Justin Bosch. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Meb. Great to be here. Justin's from the Pacific Northwest. He's going to sub in for the old Rimsburg, who's on a short-term or permanent sabbatical. We're not sure yet, but this is going to be a lot of fun. We got a lot to talk about. Lots happened since we did the last radio show, I think in November or December. What should we talk about first? Well, let's get into, uh, you got a little bit of a busy travel schedule coming up. Let us know what's what's going on there. Yeah, man. After birth of my son, I said, I'm not traveling for a while. I stayed home, but 2019 is a different year. So we, uh, we may bring him along on some of these, but I'm going to be um, on the road a bit starting with Japan later this week. So Tokyo listeners, if you're there or in Hokkaido, reach out. We'd love to meet up. And then a whole bunch of other cities giving speeches, doing meetings. If you're in any of these, please drop us a line. We'll be in Dublin, Ireland, and probably in London as well. Coming up in March, we'll be in Texas, Toronto, North Carolina, Cleveland, Detroit, NorCal, Italy, Mexico, and Virginia. Phew. Maybe worn out, but it should be a lot of fun. And uh, listeners, if, if you're in one of those cities, please reach out. And if not, you want us to come give a talk in your town or say hello, uh, please reach out. You ever been to Japan? No, never been. I, I need to uh, put it on the list here coming up soon. I, I hear they get a ton of snow. Yeah. Shout out to podcast sponsor Mountain Collective. We'll be uh, trying out the first two free days of the ski pass in Niseko which should be pretty great. But uh, yeah, looking forward to it. I'm a little ill-prepared. Haven't done any skiing yet this year, but we'll uh, hopefully hopefully be A-OK. What else, uh, what else is on the list? I think an important note here, listeners already probably know this, but I wanted to touch on it. We lost one of our uh, investing greats, Jack Bogle. You know, I mean, he's definitely on the Mount Rushmore of investors. Uh, I think probably no one has done more Certainly for individual investors, but also changing the industry, putting pressure on institutions to lower fees, consistently really living the fiduciary standard. So, I mean, he's he's certainly a titan, probably no better person to emulate as far as asset management companies. So I, we, we tweeted, we said there was probably no better way to honor him than to look up your portfolio, pick out a bunch of crappy, super expensive, tax inefficient funds, sell them, buy some some cheap funds and then probably forget about it for the next decade. So a great website we used to always tell people was Feex, F-E-E-X.com, where you can type in funds and they'll, they'll spit out cheaper alternatives. So that's a fun one to go take a look at. So RIP, Jack. So I can attest to this. Meb, you've been busy writing. So talk to us a little bit about what, what you have going on, if you can. My favorite hack 
writing hack? You always see a lot of uh, great articles. Jason Zweig recently did a few on you know the writing process and how to be a better writer and thinking about it. We'll link to them. But my my hack for productivity in general, but mainly writing, is to have something you really, really don't want to do and avoid doing. That way you can do something else. I mean, that I, I could put a thousand things in that category, certainly avoiding going to the gym. But if, if readers have noticed, I've been putting out quite a bit more writing recently than um, in quite some time. So a few articles. Uh, we may read a few as some podcast shorts, and some we'll talk a little bit about today. We have another one coming up that's revisiting some of the older articles, but one about cloning the largest hedge fund in the world that I think is pretty interesting. But, you know, it's it's been an interesting time where... Certainly 2017, we had the first time in history when markets were just up every single month. And then 2018 seemed to be more of the same, pretty mellow. And then bam, people start to get woken up by it being the first time, I think since 1930, where essentially every major asset class was down, except for cash. We did a post on this and said, you know, it's incredibly rare for that to happen. It depends how many asset classes you include and what you consider to be an asset class, but it's pretty rare for everything to be down. And the caveat, of course, is those are nominal returns. So if you look at real returns, which is after inflation, it happens a little more prominently. And, and the, the frequency has, has been more, I think it's been five times since 1930 because inflation erodes returns. Inflation is pretty mellow now, but it was a pretty unique year. And the funny thing is we said 2017 was really the outlier you, you don't really see markets where for the first time in history, stock market, it went up like 15 or 16 months in a row, but volatility is actually the norm. And so Q4 reminded everyone of that as we had one of the worst quarters ever for US stocks. And then guess what? 2019 starting to look like the opposite of 2018, which looked like the opposite of 2017. So we had one of the best Januaries ever for US stocks. So it's been uh, interesting to see people wake up. The, oddly enough, the sentiment I was at the gym the other day and out of the nine TVs on, zero were on financial news. It's just so funny to see how times have changed from 10 years ago, certainly with financial crisis, but the late 90s internet boom, when when at least half of those TVs, maybe all of them would have been on CNBC and, and other Bloomberg news channels, but, but none of them are anymore. So interesting times we're living in. It's been pretty interesting to see people kind of, you know, last summer, People I chat with other wealth managers and they say, you know, they get emails from clients say, why, why are we in anything besides S and P 500? This is crazy because everything else was going down. And then by the end of the year, people said, why are we in the S and P 500? Why aren't we in more cash? So it, it's funny to to see a quick return return to risk. You make some great points there, and that's actually a great lead in to a topic I think is important to cover here on uh, equity returns and valuation. So Charlie Bellello tweeted a chart of equity returns over the past 11 years, noting that there's, in the US, the return's been 135%. The next closest is Japan at 17%. And Italy and Russia came in, let's call it 47 and 48 respectively. So price is one thing, but valuation is entirely something different. So talk to us about that. I mean, it's a huge spread. And uh, what do you see in terms of valuation? You know, it's funny because markets zig and zag, and it's so easy for people to have a very short-term focus. And any of the 45 investable stock markets around the world, at any point in time, some are outperforming the others. You know, and, and I was trying to give some people some perspective because this, this topic consistently sort of tweaks me or triggers me. But we did a tweet and... It's funny the tweets that become most popular, by the way, because they're almost always co-opted by people. I, I often will tweet facts that then get co-opted by people on 
both sides of the aisle or both sides of a discussion. And they almost always end up ranting about the Fed or something else. But I said, you know, over the past 70 years, the U.S. stock market has been a darling, outperforming foreign stocks by 1% per year. And that's a huge difference over 70 years. That's since 1950. $10,000 invested in U.S. stocks in 1950 would have turned into $14 million versus only eight if you invested in foreign stocks. I said, want to know how much of that outperformance has come since the global financial crisis? And the answer was all of it. And that's a really surprising conclusion for a lot of people. And the argument we were making is a lot of people extrapolate recent returns. And in, in this case, I'm, I'm talking about for the past 10 years since the crisis, where the US has outperformed really everything else in the world. And the challenge for that is people assume that that is the norm. And yes, going back to 1900, US has been one of the best performing stock markets, but it wasn't the best. And there certainly were worse ones. But over time, it kind of waxes and wanes. You know, we extrapolated this a bit to an article we wrote called The Biggest Valuation Spread in 40 Years. And what we were talking about and the analogy that, that we gave was, you know, one of, of being at a local coffee shop. I love two guns, but, but Pete's is another great one. And, and, you know, there being some Los Angeles moms talking about their child and saying this child is so gifted. He's so smart. He's counting already. And then made the joke that he looked over at the child and he was, he was licking the glass on the display case for the pastries. And so everyone has their own biases. And obviously these parents think their child is exceptional as every parent would do. And so a lot of U.S. investors certainly think that the U.S. deserves a valuation premium. And I was chatting with my good friend, Josh Brown, on this, and we disagreed a little bit, but I, I made the argument. I said, you know, the U.S. trades at a valuation premium to most of the rest of the world. It's one of the most expensive countries in the world. It's not crazy, but it's in the high 20s. And certainly that's down from, it's probably back in the 30s now, but, but down from the low 30s at the end of Q3. But one of the most expensive in the world. And a lot of people say, well, the U.S. deserves to be more expensive, the rule of law, gap accounting, stable government, which I always laugh at given how the rest of the world would probably <laughs> perceive our geopolitics. But they say the U.S. deserves to be more expensive. And then my counter is always that, okay, then let's look at the data. And if you look at a chart of U.S. valuations going back to 1980 for CAPE ratio, you know what the historical valuation premium has been, and it's been zero. And the U.S. and foreign global markets outside the U.S. have traded on average at the same exact valuation. Now, there's been times when there's a huge spread. So in the 80s, it was actually the opposite. So Japan was the largest stock market in the world, and it had a massive, massive bubble traded at a valuation ratio of almost 100. But uh, that distorted most of the rest of the world, and the U.S. was cheap back then. And then most of the rest of the time ensuing, they've been kind of going back and forth. But since the financial crisis, the U.S. stock market has gone up much more than the rest of the world. And people list all the reasons I listened earlier. I say, now the U.S. is economy and this, that, and the other. But one of the biggest tailwinds is simply the valuations of both U.S. stocks and foreign stocks were in the low teens at the bottom in 2009. I think they were both around 12. Granted, nobody was buying stocks in March 2009, but they were really cheap. And guess what's happened? Well, the U.S. is, is essentially almost tripled its valuation. So you have a massive tailwind of multiple expansion. But in the rest of the world, it hasn't changed that much. So a lot of the foreign developed and emerging markets are still in the mid to low teens. And if you have a basket of the cheapest stocks, it trades at a, a CAPE ratio of around 11. So we, we wrote an article called The Biggest Valuation Spread in 40 Years. And it's funny because people... Um, their brains go a little crazy about this. And, and my argument is less about you have to 
invest all your money in cheap stocks around the world outside the US and more that you need to be thoughtful about it. And so I did a Twitter poll as I want to do. And the Twitter poll said for US investors and our global listeners can extrapolate this to their own market. So I think it's pretty interesting to see who the podcast top countries are. Do you know Sweden's in the top five? That's interesting that. to me. It's a lot of the English speaking countries you would expect, Canada, UK, et cetera. But Sweden was top five. India's top 10. We may have to do a podcast tour to some of these countries. So what's up, you guys? Um, but say, all right, so I said this to US investors, but extrapolate it to your own country. I said, how much your portfolio is in foreign stocks and bonds outside the US? And so a third said less than 15%, 30% said 15 to 30%. 21% said 30 to 45, and only 16 said over 45%. So going back to our, our great Bogle, you know, if you did the global market portfolio around the world, that means you have over half, you should have over half outside the US. But according to this poll, 84% of people have a massive bet on the US on an active bet overweighting the US. Now, you could argue that's correct. You could argue that's silly, but it's a fact. So they're making a very active bet that the US is better. And the funny thing is, is everyone will then go and justify that for all the reasons we talked about earlier. This is why I have this much in the US. The number one reason we always hear is people say, well, the US has a high percent of foreign sales abroad. Therefore, I don't need to diversify globally. And that my reaction to that is always, you can go look up all the other countries in the world and they have a high percentage of sales abroad too. <laughs> That's called globalization. That's obvious. And so in a world of being global, you should, all, you should be agnostic as to where you invest. The funny thing is this happens everywhere. We've talked about this many times on the podcast. So sorry if I'm belaboring the point, but every country around the world has the same home country bias. If you look at Canada, they put 60% of their equity market in their own country, Australia, Japan, et cetera. I saw some stat that JP Morgan had that said Latin America had like 90% in their own region. And it's even funnier where you can actually break it down in the US, for example, by sector, where people in California have more in the tech sector, where people in Texas have more in energy and people in the Northeast have more in financials. So the bias kind of works its fingers in everywhere. Uh, because everyone thinks their child special. They think that they have a false sense of security about, I understand my local market. But it's particularly problematic when it comes to valuations. Because if you're an American citizen and you're putting 80% of your money into US stocks, you're also putting them right now into one of the most expensive countries in the world. Again, it's not terrible, but it makes a lot more sense to be valuation thoughtful. So the the example we give on on this tweet was that Vanguard recently upped their uh, equity exposure to 40%. So it's close to the 50 of what the world is. And one of my little birdies inside of Vanguard said they actually wanted to do 50, but they thought there'd be too much blowback from advisors, which is pretty funny. But you could easily make an argument that 75% should be outside the US. US as a percent of world GDP is only a quarter. And so a lot of people, they want to place this huge bet on something local. And to be clear, the funniest part of the tweet is that everyone's like, well, the US has outperformed the past 10 years, which you said, that's exactly backwards looking. That's exactly 180% wrong. What you want going forward is what looks good in the future. So th this is one of my biggest struggles. And it is a topic that I really think if you were to put a gun to my head, global stocks, XUS, particularly the cheapest, which have been outperforming for the past going on one, three, four, 
five years now. It's really since 20, 2014 was a stinker for global cheap stocks, but since then they've, they've beaten pretty much anything else. A lot of people don't know that. So anyway, that was a long, long-winded answer of saying that, yeah, what's happened? And by the way, fourth quarter, U.S. was one of the worst performing countries. And this, this goes back to an old chart we have that the GMO and others have replicated, which is when you have an expensive investment, particularly a country, they have a much bigger chance of a big fat drawdown. So when, when you're expensive, you're much more fragile towards future returns. So that was my long-winded rant about valuations, about the U.S., people putting way too much in the U.S. I, my piece of advice to all the listeners would start with a global portfolio, which is half in the U.S., and then I would tilt even further towards valuation from there. But certainly putting 80% in one country, I think is, is very foolish. Well, I think those are great points. One question I have for you, you know, as an investor, someone comes to you and says, hey, Meb, that's all great. It looks great on paper, but all that cheap stuff is really scary. How do we get over the behavioral biases that we face when we're looking at allocating our portfolio and, and hopefully toward those areas of the world that look a little better on a valuation standpoint. That's why being systematic is so necessary. You know, I think waking up and calling your clients and say, hey, we're going to go buy whatever it may be is kind of a hard way to do it. But say, look, we have a process that tilts. I mean, and it doesn't have to be you're all in on Brazil and Russia. You know, it could be that you simply tilt towards value and whatever that may mean. It could be the way we do it where we're picking some of the cheapest countries in the world, but you certainly need to diversify. You never want to just own one or two countries. But even at a minimum, when we're talking about the global market portfolio, like that should be the starting point. And that's what's so hard for people. So you, when you buy that, you get 45 countries. You know, it's not just the US. You get tens of thousands of securities around the world. And don't even get me started on bonds because bonds is actually foreign bonds are the largest asset class in the world. And it's something like the US investors put, you know, 98% in the U.S. bonds. They almost never put anything in foreign bonds, which I think is really foolish. By the way, we were updating our old global value approach to government bonds where we did an old white paper saying, you know, it's totally insane to be a global sovereign bond investor in a world of 0% yields. And, you know, I think the G5 still, U.S., France, Germany, Japan, and U.K., maybe, yields less than a base, 100 basis points. And, and the U.S. is the outlier. The U.S. is the high yield. But if you were to do a, a carry approach to, to sovereign bonds, which is similar to a value approach, I think in equities, you end up with a yield north of 5 6%. Uh, anyway, that's, that's a departure. But I think foreign bonds is not the point of what we're talking about. But there's a lot of hacks around it. You can use certainly funds that don't concentrate on just one country, but have a much more broad exposure. I want to use that as a chance to shift into something related to value, but something you've done a lot of work on, trend following and momentum. So Norbert Keimling tweeted an update to some charts he and his team have updated. And he noted all country and sector valuation and momentum indicators that have been updated, 34 of the 40 countries had a negative 52-week momentum. That map on their chart is rarely seen so red. What are we looking at here? So you had a shift this year where for a long, the longest time, a global buy and hold approach was very similar to global trend approach. Most markets have been going up over the past number of years. 
the last time you really started to see some significant gyrations, maybe back early 2015. But 2018, you saw a lot of markets after Q1 start to roll over. I think foreign stocks, as well as parts of the commodities space, had already started declining early in the year. And then really the U.S. was the only man standing, left standing, coming into the end of the year and then then very quickly fell out of bed. So by the time 2018 was over, you had many of the markets around the world in downtrends. And you started to see the volatility pick up. And we talked about this on Twitter, certainly, but where it always surprises, I think, a lot of the commentators where you start to have these big up and down days. But we've shown in an old white paper called where the black swans hide that the vast majority of the up and down days at something like 70% uh, occur when the market's already declining. And so below something like a 200 day moving average or 10 month moving average. But so you had an interesting scenario where trend following type of systems started to de-risk. And so depending on the system, it could have started to de-risk as early as Q1, but certainly uh, very heavily by the end of the year. So a lot of traditional trend strategies would have been at near or max risk off or if they're in the managed future space, would have been shorting certainly a lot of these markets by the end of the year. What's interesting to note about that is that because markets go up most of the time, 60-70% of the time they're going up, it's pretty rare to have the scenarios where the buy and hold and trend diverges. And it's extremely rare when everything is kind of going down. And so you have what we call this sort of hero or zero moment for strategies to start to diverge. So for better or worse, a lot of the trend strategies will diverge going forward. We saw this somewhat in January where you had this big bounce, which is funny because we have a 10-year-old study. Uh, we've been at this too long. But if you look it up, we tweeted it that looked what happens after really bad mark months, the really bad outlier months in traditional asset classes. And so in equities in particular, it's something like if you had like an 8% or worse down month, what happened in the ensuing three months and it's pretty strong outperformance. So we, the, the balance in January is not particularly surprising. Anyway, you have a scenario where a lot of markets are still in a downtrend. It's, it's changed a little bit. There's a few that have started to see some green shoots, but that's when you see the divergences. So Will the market start ramping back up just like in 2015 or will they continue on down like in 08 or 2000? I mean, who knows? Of course, no one knows the future, but that's when you start to see some of the benefits or drawbacks of trends. So it's either the whipsaw drawback or it's the protection if things continue continue south. But it'll be, it'll be interesting to see going forward for sure. And some of the markets that were in an uptrend are, are not ones that exactly give you a lot of confidence. I mean, precious metals have started to pick up. You know, a lot of those are, are in sort of uptrending buy signals, but that's not something you really traditionally want when uh, you're in an uptrend. And along the same lines, I mean, I think 2017, 2018 was a great showcase for how something like a tail risk strategy works, you know, in real time. We have some some ideas that, that track that as, as well. And so for investors, especially those who might not have considered trend following as an allocation in their portfolio. How should they be looking at this? Is it a way they can protect downside? Is, is it a way to curb behavior? What are the virtues of trend following and how can they uh, you know, look at their portfolios today and start implementing uh, you know, some of these ideas? There's kind of two main ways. And, and we're probably the biggest outlier in the entire country as far as investment advisors that utilize trend following in their portfolios, including institutions as well. I think, I think the, the biggest institution we've ever heard of that uses traditional, what, what, what most people would be considered trend following, 
you can you can have me go off on my rant talking about market cap weighted indexing is essentially trend following, but referring to traditional tactical trend following sort of strategies, either long flat or long short, you know, you never almost never hear of an institution or an investment advisor utilizing that for more than say 10, 15% of their portfolio. I mean, most people are zero and some people are five, but with a lot of our Trinity research, the starting point is usually half. And what we tell people is say, look, nothing wrong with, with asset allocation. A buy and hold approach is certainly totally fine. Uh, the challenge with buy and hold often is that it coincides, the drawdowns of that portfolio, if you think about it, 08, 09, coincides these bear markets with recessions, uh, which is with people losing their jobs. It coincides with bad geopolitical news, economic news. So it all kind of happens at once. And the biggest challenge of that portfolio historically has just been being able to, to sit on your hands, not do anything dumb, and just to endure. And for a lot of people, that's really hard. That having been said, it's it's a great investment approach. We We have one of the lowest cost asset allocation strategies out there. And on the flip side, trend following, which we've been writing about for over a decade, the way we do it, which is moving to cash and bonds as, as markets decline, has been a great strategy where you traditionally have lower volatility, lower drawdowns. You're not going to be invested in a market as it goes usually down 20, 40, 60, 80%. And so the whole goal is to miss the big ones. But the big ones don't happen all that much. You know, you may get one a decade, you may get none, you may get two. So they're pretty rare, but they do happen in markets everywhere. In some cases, they get really bad and really big. You know, if you ask any of our friends in uh, Brazil or Russia or uh, China or India or Greece, those a lot more recent memories, Italy, than the US. But it's funny how people forgot something as, as quick as 10 years ago. So trend following has its own challenges. Um, one is certainly you look different which usually looking different is not a problem when you look better. It's a problem when you look worse. And that's hard for a lot of people. Their neighbors are making money, but they're not, uh, is one of the worst possible ways to invest. You know, the, the old uh, Munger quote where he says, I've heard Warren say a million times, it's not greed and fear that drive markets, it's envy. And so being not invested when people are making money is tough. And the other one being, of course, whipsaw. So being having a lot of false signals or underperforming a traditional buy and hold, but trend following usually does well when when buy and hold is doing poorly. And so you have this sort of yin yang, and it's a nice complementary portfolio where they both should do about the same return over time. I think if I had to pick one, I would pick trend, of course, but they complement each other. And it goes back to the, the old Bogle quote where, I mean, granted, he would roll over in his grave talking about trend following, but he puts half his money in stocks and bonds and says he always that way he worries, spends half time worrying as too much in stocks and half time worrying as too much in bonds. And this is the same way I think about trend following where, you know, that's what I do with my portfolio and my money uh, into these into these Trinity ideas. And so for most of the time, I'm happy I have a bunch in buy and hold. And the other times I'm super happy I have a bunch in, in trend following. The handling sort of the last quarter and beginning of this year, it helps to smooth things out. So we didn't really talk into managed futures, which is more of a traditional long short approach to trend following. And the short side is traditionally, I don't think a huge alpha generator, but I think it's a wonderful diversifier when everything's kind of going to hell or or you have a, a deflationary sort of shock. Not much really helps other than bonds, obviously tail risk, but uh, or, or being short. So that works as a great diversifier to a traditional portfolio. So, you know, we tend to be an outlier, but we're a very happy uh, and content outlier. I do want to shift into the topic of buybacks. It's hotly debated. There seems to be no clear 
consensus here, which is probably a good thing for investors using this as a factor. Jeremy Schwartz tweeted about buybacks recently and linked to a piece titled, Please Repurchase Responsibly. So he says, buyback haters will not like this note if net buybacks were used on top of dividends alone as a value factor over the last decade. Performance impact was substantial, over 300 basis points a year increase over dividends alone in the top quintile. What I think was really important or as equally as important was that the study also mentioned that the bottom quintile of shareholder yield underperformed the market by 342 basis points. So talk about the takeaways here. Uh, I think there's a lot of good points in there. It's simple, man. And and you're you're hitting on all my trigger points so far. We got CAPE ratio. We're now on to buybacks. Uh, these are things that, that I lose my mind about. The buyback discussion is interesting because it's getting partially co-opted by politicians. And so d- despite the fact that I've muted every political phrase I can possibly think of on Twitter, they seem to all still get through. I think you need to separate this into two buckets. There's the corporate operational structure side and societal justice. And we can talk about that. And then there's also the pure investment side. Let's talk about pure investment side first, because it's really simple. There's only five things a company can do with its money. It can reinvest in the business, which is the sexy part, build new iPhones, build new plants, all that good stuff. It can pay down debt if it has any. It can go acquire another company or merge. And then the last two are it can pay out its cash through dividends or buybacks. And if I didn't say it, pay down debt too. That's it. It's only five things, literally only five things a company can do with its money. And so historically speaking, as an investor, you want a company that has high cash flows that in this case distributes the cash flows. And the research shows that stockholders don't care about how they distribute the cash flows. It's just the the holistic total amount, which correlates very highly with how much cash flows they have in the first place and to pay a low valuation for that portfolio. And research, we call it shareholder yield. Other people call it different things, net payout yield, et cetera. But if you include dividends and buybacks into the equation and in an additional benefit, I think target value, it outperforms historically any dividend measure you can come up with and for something like nine decades or or more that we have research for, and in almost every decade. And it's really strange to still see all the focus on income investing through dividends, because it's totally nonsensical. You're you're ignoring half of how come over half now of how companies distribute their cash. I would also argue it's totally as nonsensical to look at just buybacks. An additional caveat you need to use is, of course, net buybacks, because what you hinted on in this piece where the bottom quartile shareholder yield, which essentially is companies that don't pay dividends that are issuing shares. Traditionally, that's through management, paying themselves a lot of options and diluting shareholders. That's the last thing you want, right? That's people that are diluting you as a shareholder and you're getting no yield. You would expect that to underperform the market and it has. So shareholder yield strategies have done fantastic. I would continue to expect them to outperform any dividend strategy you can possibly come up with particularly the ones that ignore buybacks and particularly the ones that ignore value as an as a input as well. Let's talk about the political side real quick. You know, th- there's some very clear challenges in our economic environment where there's been this massive spread in between what workers have made, real wages, and what a lot of top executives and the super wealthy have made, right? And so it's really simple for 
politicians to find a you know a boogeyman and and buybacks sound good on paper but i was reading an old article by damadaran professor from nyu where he's like look it's it's a great scapegoat but there's no basis for this and and let me explain why so first of all so elizabeth warren has done that and i'm as listeners know i'm i'm politically uh, independent so this isn't a this isn't a republican democrat thing Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Chuck Schumer have all taken to the news headlines to say buybacks are terrible. The first part is usually people don't understand that buybacks and dividends are the exact same thing. It's just simply a way to, to return cash to shareholders. And so that trips up 90% already. The interesting part was that Bernie Sanders and Schumer seem to understand that they are the same thing. They mentioned the article. They said, we want to limit the ability to which companies can, can buy back stock and also limit the, to the extent that they can pay out dividends. And they, they had some criteria. But the funny part about that is, you know, if you have the assumption that CEOs are self-absorbed, empire-building, these kind of egomaniacs that want to, want to go spend a ton of money on giving themselves high salaries, what's the last thing you want to do? Give them more cash. So if you limit or get rid of buybacks and dividends, CEO now says, okay, well, I can't return it to shareholders. I'm going to go spend it on a new building or sponsoring, I don't know, the Broncos stadium or paying myself more salary and a new jet. Like it's the last thing you want is to give um, the CEO more money to light on fire. That's one of the best checks against CEOs is the ability to give cash back to shareholders because shareholders complain about the CEO. The big problem with all this, and I've been saying this for a long time, is if you want to check on CEO compensation, it's a board issue. So the board is supposed to be on the hook for regulating how the CEOs get paid. And if you're an idiotic board that pays the CEO based on short-term returns or stock price or EPS, then you're just an idiot. And you should be fired. And it's you're not doing your fiduciary duty. And so, you know, the, the key with all of this is that incentives matter. And so come, it's coming up with a system that would align shareholders, align employees, align management so that you're not rewarding management at the expense of employees it makes a lot of sense. But it's not dividends and buybacks. And in fact, if you started to limit dividends and buybacks, you're, you're very easily could have the exact opposite outcome. And it's irrelevant to us. I mean, if, if let's say, for example, dividends and buybacks became illegal somehow, first of all, you would have every company on the planet just go private. There's no point in being a public company. But second, you know, the whole point of, of investing is you want to tilt towards value and be a value investor anyway. So it's a frustrating, I, I joked on Twitter, I said, we should, um, I need to write an article called Buyback FAQ for Journalists and Politicians, but it's uh, I, I, I don't know if I need any more fights to pick on Twitter. I have enough, I have enough uh, arguments. So look, as a shareholder, remember, you want cash flow in companies, you want good companies that are trading for low valuations. And if they're paying out a lot of it in cash and dividends and buybacks, uh, even better. Great points. But I, I do want to circle back to sort of the uh, the evidence we're seeing in, in studies and research that point that stands out to me is that not only is it important to consider shareholder yield for potential returns, but it's equally important to make sure you're avoiding things that could potentially drag on you. The classic example we give is we say people, here's how to think about the dividends that most people get wrong. Say, no, 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 I love a dividend approach. That's all I care about. 
I said, well, you could also have a company that's paying a 4% dividend. And if they're issuing 5% new shares outstanding every year, you have a negative yield. And it's it's hard for a lot of people because most websites don't publish buyback yield like you would see a dividend yield. And by the way, most sites publish like four different versions of dividend yield, by the way. So it's a little harder number to come by. So it's harder for people to screen. And it tells a good story. I mean, our, our old piece, which we'll link to, the, is talking about Coke versus Pepsi and how dividends have a great brand. You know, all the retirees listening to this love getting their, their dividend check in the mail because they think they're somehow getting paid. But in reality, you could easily have a company that has dividend yield that's getting swamped by shares outstanding, um, increasing. And on top of all this, the last thing you want on the planet is any of these variations of companies that are expensive. And so a lot of dividend funds don't use valuation as a metric. And so you guys don't believe me, go to Morningstar, type in your favorite dividend fund, go to the holdings tab, go look at the valuations. And the vast majority of the biggest dividend ETFs are more expensive than the US stock market. <laughs> That's the last thing you want on the planet is a bunch of high yielding junky companies uh, in the next bear market because they're, they're not going to protect people the way that people would expect them to, and particularly the people that I've mentioned they think that dividends represent a substitute for bonds, which we've heard in the media a few times this cycle, which I think is totally insane. Well, moving on. So another topic I'd love to, to get into a little bit is dollar cost averaging. So this is a little bit more on the side of investors thinking about their portfolios and, and how they're implementing their investing strategies over time. Josh Brown retweeted a piece on dollar cost averaging by Michael Batnick. The piece discusses the reality that with dollar cost averaging, you're buying low and buying high. I think that's important to keep in mind. Over the last 20 years, someone who systematically invested each month actually beat the S&P 500. That was a little bit of a surprise to me. Is there a hard rule on this? Is it really the best way to go in all time periods? Is, is there a reason to believe something like lump sum investing can be superior? I was actually walking my dog this morning and listening to a podcast called Top Traders Unplugged, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And they do a systematic investor series where they get a couple well-known investors and do kind of just like a roundtable happy hour chat. And, and one of them is Jerry Parker, who was on uh, this podcast in the past. And I, lo I love Jerry. And he approached the same question. And, and I've mentioned it many times before in the same way, which is if you have a positive expected bet or return stream, the algorithmic best time to start is now. There's no question. The, the correct answer is you should put all of it in today, lump sum. Now, that ignores the psychology of humans because I guarantee you if I said, okay, you just inherited a million dollars or you just sold your house, you got a million bucks, what should you do with it? And I say, you should put it all in today. And then the stock market goes down 20% next month. You're going to pull your hair out. You're going to regret that for the rest of your life regardless of the randomness of it. So we, we tell people, look, dollar cost averaging is fine. If you want to invest one twelfth every month for the next 12 months, so you don't have any hindsight, regret and bias, that's fine. If you want to do it over the next five years, that's totally fine. It's whatever you come up with the system. The problem is that most people shoot from the hip. They don't have a plan. They say, well, we'll see how it goes. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. Hey, Meb, I think markets are expensive. I think they've gone too far. I want to invest how much ever money, but I'm going to wait till the market pulls back. And then 100, 200, 300% later, they're still waiting. And you know, the big problem with that is that over time, markets go up. And we'll read a piece coming up on the podcast you guys should listen to. It's a, it's a, a short piece I wrote called The Stay Rich Portfolio, which talks a little bit about this. But the simple algorithmic answer is immediate and all. 
But I think the real answer is it's totally fine if you spread it across time. And in the spreading across time, what the article about Josh and, and Batnick was referring to is that it makes it means the timing matters really not at all if you're if you're spreading it out over time. So it's really about knowing yourself, knowing your plan, and knowing knowing what suits you better. Yeah. And and this is I don't want to give away the whole piece on which I'm going to read later, but you know I think one of the most important things as I get older is a lot of the framing about investing. I think if people thought of investing and just replaced everything about the word investing with just saving and thinking about it as savings and not investing, but almost like a just a more volatile savings account, I, I think that's a really useful construct because savings aren't risk free either. And we'll talk about in the stay rich piece. But in general, if if you think about all this with a umbrella of savings rather than investing, it changes how you think about a few things. Little behavioral hack. I like it. A big thing on investors' minds coming up, you know, this time of the year is taxes. So Jason Zweig had a piece in the Wall Street Journal that he talked about the tax gains and the tax bills that uh, mutual fund investors are likely going to be facing from 2018. There's a, a big difference between ETFs and mutual funds as far as the structure goes and, and the potential capital gains consequences. So the article talked about, about some issues, including how there are 517 mutual funds that announced they will pay out at least 10% of net assets as capital gains. So talk to us a little bit about what the mechanics are that get us here, what the problems are that investors are potentially facing. And this, this is important because it's very poorly understood. And so in my opinion, there's almost no reason to justify investing in a mutual fund today. Now, that there's, there's obviously departures for that. And I, I joke because I have plenty of mutual fund friends. There's plenty of great mutual funds out there. But as far as the base case, so let's talk about it. Only thing 99% of people think about is, is management fee. So already the average mutual fund is 125, 1.25%. The average ETF is half that, so around 0.6. Granted, if they're indexed or low-cost funds, you know we've said this a million times, Bogle echoes this, said it's not about active or passive, it's about high fee, low fee. You have some in both cases that are 0.1%. So, But on average, ETFs are half the cost. So that becomes your default. But taxes are where there's a huge difference. And no one really cares. And I say no one on average because 90% of the people I talk to don't care or they don't know. But the simple, very simple takeaway and the stat I think you cited was that mutual funds on average, 60 plus percent of them are paying out capital gains every year. And ETFs, it's five, 6% order of magnitude less. And ETFs in general, almost never pay out a capital gain. And it's just part of the structure. And we've talked about this. We can go down a rabbit hole about why. But in general, most ETFs, like the spiders since the late 90s, have never paid a meaningful capital gain ever. And so that works out to, I think Robert Knott was the one that, that did the math. It's like an 80 basis point difference in net returns over time. And so all of a sudden you have, not only do you have a 60 basis point advantage on ETFs for fees, but it's actually swamped by the amount you'd save on taxes, which is arguably equal to the amount you'd save on management fees. And so you have a mutual fund now that has to outperform by what is that over a hundred basis points just to break even with a, a similar ETF. And so it's a structural thing. Look, some people have figured it out better. Vanguard has a patent that allows them to sort of lay off some of their mutual fund taxes on their ETFs, which doesn't benefit the ETF, but 
benefits their mutual fund customers. But in general, the default is most of your mutual funds are going to be tax efficient. But again, people don't care because they don't see it they until they pay the IRS. And it's just, it's not something they see when they would be buying the fund. So it's it's unfortunate because it's probably a bigger determinant of performance than management fees are. You know, the last thing I will comment that just so you don't think I'm totally biased because I'm an ETF manager, there's extra costs in, in trading ETFs, which is the bid ask spread. And, and many are very small, but the average, I think, uh, was like 20 basis points. So, you know, for the people out there that are trading ETFs every other day, uh, that can be a very real cost too. But as, as you all know, I, I think uh, most people should be buying their allocation and then doing nothing for 10 years if they can help it. But it's a great example. I mean, the dividend one is another great example, but these are just things that to me are so obvious, but goes to show that people aren't totally rational investors, not totally logical. And some of these, by the way, the worst case scenario with a mutual fund is you have these guys that lost money in 2018. You could have bought the fund in 2018, lost money, and then have to pay a capital gains tax because the mutual fund did trading. And then that is just like the most horrific outcome. It's really terrible. And some of these were were monster, like 20% capital gains tax. I mean, it's it's really terrible. Anyway. So what do you do? White Bitcoin? Sell your mutual fund clean? buy a bunch of ETFs. I mean, the challenge, of course, is a lot of people to have, if you've owned mutual funds for 10, 20 years and you have big fat capital gains, I, I can sympathize with why you might not want to sell and pay the taxes. But you're going to have to weigh the amount that you're getting eroded each year by the management fee and the drag on taxes versus an ETF. I mean, most people, I say, rip off the bandage. In a somewhat related example, a lot of people say the same thing with individual stocks and say, oh, man, you know, I've owned GE for 10, 20 years. I can't sell it now. I have a huge capital gain. And then what's the next thing that happens? It goes down 50, 70% or something, and you've lost all the capital gains, solve that problem. So almost always, you know, the better answer is just be done with it, sell. You don't have to sell all of it, but sell some and, and balance your portfolio. But pay attention to your, your taxes, people. It's uh, it's really important. Why don't we get into some listener Q&A? Let's do it. Listeners, by the way, send uh, Q&A questions. We, we've depleted most of them because we haven't been doing too many radio shows, but we're going to pick them back up. So feedback at themebfabershow.com. Send them in and we'll read them live on air. What do you got? So this is coming from the perspective of students that are looking to get into quant finance. So think MBA finance students, you know, even finance students in general, I, I think this applies. How can I find a good mentor in this field? You can have a good mentor without it being a personal relationship. I mean, you could consider listening to this podcast as me mentoring you for 150 episodes. So right now you have a mentorship. We wrote an article about this. It says basically like how to get a master's in investing. I mean, if you go listen to the top four or five investment podcasts, I guarantee you, you are going to be exponentially light years ahead of any grad student that completes coursework that didn't listen to them. So if you listen to all the interviews, because I mean, if you think about it, who are you listening to? And, and it's being able to sit in on conversation between multiple billion dollar money managers just shooting the shit, right? Like it's like what better way to learn than listening to some of the people we've had on the podcast, but also some of the other top podcasts as well. I don't think the mentor has to be a personal one that you're necessarily working with. If that question was more referring to that, the question is really more, how do I find a job? Which is a totally different question. But if you're really just concerned about learning, I think podcasts have been one of the biggest positives for investors in decades. To pile onto that one, how do you feel about learning through managing your own money? There's some good and bad lessons. You know, I, I think 
and I want to do a book on this at some point, but I, I think the incentives matter. You know, I, I, we talked a lot about in the past in some of the podcasts about how a lot of traditional parents try to teach their children about investing is kind of backwards. Certainly, I think investing, almost everyone you talk to, they learn by investing their own money. You know, and until you feel the very real pain of doing dumb stuff over and over, it's not a, a reality. You know, so you, we talked to a lot of people say, yeah, I can take on tons of risk. Bring it on. I'm just looking to compound as high as I can. And then their portfolio goes down 20% or 50% that they expect to go down. And they say, oh my God, I can't, I can't deal with this, you know? So I certainly think that getting real world ex- experiences is important, whatever that may be. Does that mean trading a bunch of crypto and, and, you know, trading day trading stocks and buying message board securities and listening to your neighbor? Maybe if that's what, you know, you're gonna learn all things not to do. But you got to start at some point, and, and the younger you are, you have by far the biggest advantage of anyone else for compounding, and that's certainly time. What do you wish you knew when you're working as an engineer and considering a career switch to quant finance? Man, working as an engineer, I would have been an intern at Lockheed back in the day, learning about stocks in the late 90s, because I, I think I was finished. My, you, there's only so much you can do as an engineer at an aerospace company when you're 20 years old, except play on the softball team. You know, I mean, I, look, the, the people that give advice on this sort of thing, it, it's tough because, you know, the, the way that I went about it is one of the most atypical ways that anyone can go about it because it was a lot of it was self-taught. And that's good in a way because I came with no preconceived notions. It was bad in a way because I spent many hundreds and thousands of hours uh, kind of reinventing the wheel, you know, so I think find like that. I mean, again, if I could have had podcasts back then, my God, what a, what a wonderful thing. But it, Back in the 90s, we had something called books. So simply just to read a lot. And, and, you know, obviously, I wish I could go back and tell myself, don't read these hundreds of books and these terrible things. But but that's part of how you find your own style. You know, Buffett talks about being inoculated as a value investor and other people are trend followers and other people are merger arb and yada, yada, um, whatever you may be. But, you know, finding your own style, I think, is important because, you know, a lot of people trying to fit them into a hole that's not comfortable for them is is just, it's not going to work out. And that, that applies to career in general. By the way, how how did you find your own style? I mean, what what was it that that morphed, you know, how did it morph over I mean, time? Some of, and- some of it was, some of it was intentional. Some of it was decided for you. You know, I think probably if, if any dozens of job opportunities had arisen in my twenties, I certainly would have taken them. You know, if they, if they many of these jobs, I probably would have would have been the most intolerable person if I if I got many of them. But that's the randomness and beauty of life is that it's a, a bit of a ping pong. You don't necessarily get to make the decisions on a lot of those choices either. How can I build a network without Ivy League or Silicon Valley connections? I don't have either of those, as most don't. I think it's it's, it's common sense advice. It's Certainly going to as many events as possible, you know, CFA, Kaya, a lot of these organizations, local Quaffafuse or AAI, whatever the organizations are, whatever you're interested in, that's the best way to, to learn and make friends and find people with common interests. I mentioned podcasts enough already, you know, and then I think that if the question was more angled towards finding a job, it goes back to the comments we've made on all of these questions. It's funny from students because they're all about them is how can I find a good mentor? How can I build a network? And what the question really needs to be, and they learn eventually, is reversed. How can I deliver value to someone? Because no one gives a shit about you as a 20-year-old student furthering your career. I mean, they might, but in general, you know, it's, it's really how can you be a benefit to someone in their life? And the, 
the best example we've talked about was the Theo Epstein from baseball, where he said, go up to someone that or job you want or your current superior and say, what's the 20% of this job you hate the most? And let me take it over, you know, and, and let me, that way you learn part of that job. Uh, it may be miserable, but you, you also endear yourself to your superior, which is a wonderful situation to be in. You know, so a lot of that's just showing up. I can't tell you how many times people have put themselves in situations where all they had to do was ask or all they had to do was make the effort and they don't often because they're scared. You know, we've had a number of times where we've done events or talks and I'll get an email later and say, Hey man, like, I'd really want to say hi, but I just, you know, I didn't, you were busy or whatever it may be. Um, good examples. One of the podcast guests, Steve Sugarood was talking about Jim Rogers, famous hedge fund manager, partner with Soros back in the day and uh, ran one of the most successful hedge funds of all time. And he was sitting at a table and the seat next to him was open and no one would sit there because they were all too scared. And so he sat down and they're now good friends. And so it, it, it's a good example of just trying to, one, showing up and doing the work, but two, be willing to kind of put yourself out there and make make the effort. Well, I think that's a great point on on making the effort. Another another thing I'll add, it, it probably teaches you a lot about, you know, whether or not you're you're really committed or cut out to for the uh, the job in question. Yeah. Yeah. So, what knowledge, skills, degrees or certifications are most important and how do you recommend I obtain those skills? Totally depends on what you're doing, what area. It's a super broad question. I almost feel like the same person asked all four of these. Depends. You know, if you want to be a financial engineer and work on the derivatives desk at Goldman, you should probably get a master's in financial engineering. Um, if you're uh, or a PhD and, and learn to code, if you want to play golf and be a wealth manager and make a million bucks a year and, and um, have a cushy lifestyle job, uh, you better be good at people skills. Not only the, the basics of um, getting a CFP, maybe financial planning, learning uh, some tax uh, trying to figure out, you know, how you can network with people and, and also become a good salesman. Totally different skill sets for totally different jobs. You want to be a portfolio manager, which seems everyone wants to be Bobby Axelrod from Billions and, and you know, fly around in jets and, and helicopters. You know, it's a, it's a different skill set too. Being a trader, being a portfolio manager, being a quant. You know, there's a million different roles in our world. And so it's hard to pigeonhole one. So hard to say. Well, that's all I got today. Anything else you want to you No, wanna cover? listeners, it's been good to be back on the radio show. Send us some suggestions for 2019. We're open to ideas. Um, and again, if you're in Japan, Europe, Austin, Toronto, North Carolina, Cleveland, Detroit, NorCal, Italy, Mexico, Virginia, or Los Angeles, any point, come say hello. We love uh, chatting with people here in Manhattan Beach um, as well. We'll post show notes to uh, all the things we talked about today. Subscribe to the show. Uh, let us know what you think. By the way, leave us a review. We love reading them. Good, bad, in between, everything, always. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.